You're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm Beach, the optimistic newbie developer. All right, Will, uh, what's been going on with you this week? I've been fighting with a bit of an interesting problem. It seems like every week you say you're fighting with something. Yeah, I pretty much am. <laughs> uh, if you hear me say that I'm not fighting with something, I'm probably not saying because I'm probably dead. However, what I'm actually dealing with at the moment is writing a custom Saga State storage provider for mass transit. You know, I've got my own data access library. I, I know that. So explain to me again, what's a Saga State? Essentially, if you have a distributed process and you know A happens, then B happens, then C and D happen concurrently, and then when those complete, you go to you go to E and then you go to F, and then it splits out. You know, strangely, I, I am following this, so keep going. Right, a complete workflow process. Well, a, that's a saga, you know, mass transit parlance, and what you're doing is you're saving state as the thing is going through because it may be distributed. You know, the processing may be happening in different places for different things. Mass Transit 3 just recently came out. This is a C-sharp library for this sort of thing. And their Saga state providers currently are in Hibernate and Entity Framework. There's one I saw for Dapper, um, which I totally lifted some source code from, but not very much really. And the thing is, is I have my own data access framework because I look at it a little bit differently than the way the rest of the industry does, I think. We won't get into that right now. However, for today, I do it differently. And I have my own data access framework, which I think is actually pretty slick at this point because I've, I've literally taken out probably 99% of the things that irritate me about data access regardless of what I'm dealing with. You know, I've got a side project we're releasing within a month, and this won't be in that release more than likely, but it's, it's getting it ready to scale. And the problem is, is because I have that instead of Entity Framework or in Hibernate with mass transit sagas, I need to be able to save the current state of a saga as it's processing. You yeah. know, save it to a persistent medium. You know, there's the default one that's like an end memory. That's great until you shut the process down and bring it back up and then that's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm writing my own currently. And most of it has actually been remarkably pleasant. There is one piece, however, where they pass in an expression tree to tell you how to query the sagas which is nasty. And the reason it's nasty is because my data access framework doesn't really support expression trees for querying. So I've got to take that and parse that into something that I can pass to a stored procedure, which is what I'm using under the hood. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to make this work. I mean, I've, I've done some work on it, but that's that's my slugging match of the week right now is, is fighting with that problem. The Google Maps problem from last week, done. No problem. It's finally all working. There was a lot of nasty merging, but... I think I'm going to start asking you, what are you fighting this week? Yeah. That's probably, you know, honestly, (laughs) that's completely reasonable. Because there's always one thing. So, uh, what are you up to this week? Well, I've been spending a lot of time in JavaScript, really. I'm starting to really like it. Uh, I I enjoy working in JavaScript quite a bit. It's, uh, It's been rather interesting. Have you learned the two great facts about JavaScript? Maybe. What are they? Well, the first fact about JavaScript is that it's a beautiful language capable of beautiful things. The second great fact about JavaScript 
is that 99% of the code on the internet is written by people that are not capable of those things. But no, I, and I haven't even gotten into using any of the libraries or jQuery or anything. I'm just using pure JavaScript and just thoroughly love it. It's fun. Honestly, I, I recommend you continue um, on that course of action. Like avoid jumping into jQuery at this point. Mm -hmm. Get vanilla JavaScript down and then just use jQuery to enhance it. Yeah. I, I you understand the underlying. Because what, what happens to a lot of developers, especially older devs like me that started... You know, ASP.NET back in the day, everything was structured around not wanting to mess with JavaScript. But a lot of people are, are very avoidant of JavaScript. Well, I know you and I have uh, several mutual friends that, you know, have been coding since pretty much the 90s that do not like JavaScript. Right, because it sucked back then. I still have my JavaScript book from college, and I think there's notes in the margin about why I hate this language so much. And, you know, it's matured. It's it's a real language now. Node is a, is a thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us are a little slow to come off of that. And so it's it's good that you're getting that baseline stuff. Plus, well, you can get into Node. You can do, you can do oh, something. Yeah. That's one of the things that's, that's a lot of fun for me is it's something that I kind of recognize because, I mean, for the listeners, I coded a lot in the late mid to late 90s and then skipped about a decade and a half and started again. And so it's really fun to see where JavaScript was then to where it is now. Yeah. Yeah, I I think JavaScript is a lot of fun. I've built the a few of those games for my nieces and currently I don't know how useful this will be to anyone but me, but I have started working on a JavaScript button library because I'm lazy. <laughs> and uh, one of the games I was making for my nieces, I just didn't want to rewrite the same code to make the same buttons. So I just made a function in JavaScript and can call that and gave me the idea. I'm like, well, if I just make my own little library for this, I don't have to ever write this again. So I well, did. It's it's sort of like, it's like an archaeological dig, to be 100% honest. If your ego is invested in how great humanity was... If you dug up Homo habilis using, you know, chunks of flint to chop something, you would be humiliated. However, it's a necessary transition step to where you want to go. Yeah. Which is where we are now. So, you know, I think that's that's actually a pretty useful thing. And of course, BJ and I are going to uh, be doing a little bit more intense JavaScript. Oh, surprise, you didn't know that. I kind um, of figured. You know, going towards the end of the year because, you know, he's, he's an intern... Uh, getting more skill, and this is this is a way to kind of push him. And plus, I've got to get some stuff done. So you know, he's gonna he's gonna learn all the things to hate about JavaScript and all the things to love about it. And you know, thankfully, the former list is getting shorter as the years go on. So I'm well, glad to see that you're you're picking that up. That said, uh, I think we're we're ready to move on. So, Will, let's go ahead and play that rockin' music. Alright guys, this week I have something for you that's uh, kind of interesting and it's going to be something that we're going to continue on for a little while, 
not all at once, but uh, as we go along, I'm going to be doing little snippets from it here and there. And that is programming languages for IoT. Now, the other day, I found a really awesome article at uh, informationweek.com titled 11 Programming Languages for IoT. So in this episode, I'm just going to list those out for you. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes that you can go and read their little information about them. But further on, we're going to do a few episodes about each language or you know, some of them we may combine. Just sort of, I want to get more in-depth into it, and that's going to take longer than uh, one IoT's section. So those, How many languages? 11? 11, yeah. Yeah. So those languages include uh, C and C++, as well as Java and JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, you can put Node. I guess you put Node on them. Yeah, you can. There's, yeah. Uh, there's websites devoted to it. There's a GitHub repo devoted specifically to IoT uh, for JavaScript. PHP? Is, it, is PHP on the list? It is not. It should be. Because you can run Apache. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I'll add I know that. because I have. I'll add that to the list and lo- and do some research on it. Thanks. Python, Go, Rust. I always wanted to play with Rust, and I never have time. Uh, the others include Parasail, B Sharp, Assembly, or Assembly, Assembler. Assembler is awesome. That was my favorite class in college. Shout out to Dr. Butler. Probably isn't listed to this, but hey, you know, never know. Uh, yeah. That was that was definitely my favorite computer programming class. Like, assembler makes you feel like you're a wizard. You know the special incantations, and you can make things happen. Yeah, I I can totally see that. Yeah, um, and then the last one is fourth, and uh, I'm probably not going to go through these in that order. Now that's the order they're on the website uh, or the blog post, and. Uh, I'll probably hit some here and there, but eventually we will cover all of these languages and give kind of like a brief overview and uh, how they're useful in IoT. All right, so uh, continuing our talk on uh, health concerns for developers, this week we're going to talk about financial health, and Will has done a lot of work on this. He hasn't quite gone full med student like I did, but uh, he has some good notes. So I'll let him go ahead and get started. Okay, well, sure. Um, First thing is, I think just about everybody in this country is aware that debt is a bit of a problem for individuals, for businesses, uh, for the country itself. I really didn't know that. Yeah, right. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So it's it's sort of obvious that we have a, a bit of difficulty handling financial matters uh, at, at a deep cultural level and it manifests itself in people's personal lives, their business lives, and in the broader country and really the entire planet at this point has got a tremendous debt load that we really can't ever get past. But in this episode, we're going to discuss household, you know, personal debts. So I guess to start off, let's, let's talk about debt levels. American consumers are currently $11.85 trillion in debt, and that's up by 1.7% from last year. And these figures, you'll see this in the show notes. We've got a nice little article that's on nerdwallet.com. Oh, that's a cool website. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've got actually got five different 
articles that will be in the show notes for various things. I'll try to cite them, but, you know, I might get sloppy. So $11.85 trillion in debt. That includes $890.9 billion in credit card debt. That's billion with a B. Uh, $8.17 trillion in mortgages. And $1.19 trillion in student loans, which is up by 7.1% from last year. And at least over half of that are my student loans. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, it's a problem. Indebtedness is in decline. The same article kind of noted this. Um, but the reason that indebtedness is in decline is largely due to people defaulting on their debts, not due to repayment of debts. Of course, you can't default on student loans. It's, no, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to student loans. Banks aren't lending like they used to. Right. Uh, and I was talking to uh, one of the managers at my bank, and he was telling me, he's like, yeah, we don't even do personal loans anymore. Yeah, it's hard to get a, get a personal loan, uh, especially, well, honestly, typically if you're in a position to need a personal loan, you can't get a personal loan. Yeah. And if you're in a position where you don't need a personal loan, then they'll approach you with them, <laughs> which is, is a bit strange anyway. But the thing is, is, it's really not, there's not enough profit in there at this point for the banks to want to do it. I will say this. Um, I have been approved, or my business has been approved for a loan many times. I get those phone calls at least once a week. Yep. I get the same ones, and I've uh, won a cruise, and there's a Nigerian prince that's going to send me a million dollars if I only send him 100000 so he can transfer it out of the country. So, again, the indebtedness is in decline, but it's because of defaults rather than repayment. And this is this is sort of a big thing because this indicates just how deep the rabbit hole goes. People are not only taking out a lot of debt and it's cramping their lifestyle, but it's getting it to the point where they aren't able to repay it. They're having to default because they can't make the payments. Student loans are a particular example of this, which we'll get into here in a minute. There's several common sources of problems. Uh, one of those that, you know, that leads into this is credit card debt. Um, as of 2014, 34% of Americans had revolving credit card debt. What do you mean by revolving? Uh, it's essentially you, keep, you take out a loan uh-huh. or you take your credit card. You pay it off, and then you immediately do it again. Oh, yeah. So I mean, some of that is is financial planning, right? You'll see this in uh, books like Ramit Sethi's uh, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. We'll link this in the show notes. But he discusses strategies for using credit cards as part of your wealth-building strategy. The problem is, is that most people don't really quite have the discipline to do this appropriately. There are ways to do some things with it that you know, can help. It's not, uh, not quite Dave Ramsey style. Right, it's not at all Dave Ramsey style. I mean, debt debt can be useful if you're using it to create productive value. In other words, like if you're taking out a loan to say buy a computer because you're going to be doing, you know, graphic design or programming or something like that, and you're going to be earning money off of the expenditure of that money, then the debt can actually help you get there. Um, and I actually have a credit card that I have used exactly once because I always forget that it's in my wallet, and it gives me pretty good. I, I looked into it a while back. I just never, I never remember that it's there. Well, I can take it and use it for you. Oh, I'm sure you can. 
Average consumer credit card debt per household in America is $15,706. This is obviously not month-to-month recurring expenses. Now, granted, that's you know, that's probably like Donald Trump's transportation costs in a month. But for most of us, that's a little bit more than we actually spend. I could not imagine having credit card debt that high. Well, good. Don't get there. You know, that that The payment on a debt of that size is pretty substantial, even with no interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, you know, I had a $14,000 plumbing bill last year because we had just this extreme run of bad luck, right? You know, somebody chipped a pipe with a pick when we were, uh, we were planting shrubbery around the house and then we had sewage back up into the house and then it turned out that there was all these problems, right? So $14,000. My payment on that was $260 a month and that was interest free. I think it was two years and some change. I forget exactly how long it was. Once I've been paying that off aggressively, even without, you know, with it not having interest because it just irritates me. I'm in a new house now and I hate the fact that I'm paying money on the old house still. I I can't deal with that. But the fact is, is that's a car payment. Yeah. Um, Especially for somebody that's a little bit more marginalized economically that doesn't, you know, doesn't have much cash flow coming in. That's that's a huge amount of money. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that may be their grocery bill for a month, depending on how bad off they are, and that's the average. So credit card debt is is one major problems. Now, another major problem is medical debt. Medical bills are the largest cause of U.S. bankruptcies. Uh, we've got an article here from CNBC that we'll also link in the show notes. Uh, it's about seventeen percent of bankruptcies. It's not only hitting Americans without health insurance. People often are on high deductible plans. They find out they've got some kind of very, very bad disease, you know, cancer, something like that catches them off guard. And what ends up happening is they take out, you know, they use their credit card to pay their medical bills because you're in a bad situation. You're going to die if you don't pay this bill. You're not going to get treatment in, in some cases. And so they take out the credit card pay that. Well, then what do they have? They have a massive credit card bill, but it's really a medical bill in disguise. And so this ends up rolling up to the point where they get bankrupt. The other thing that happens with medical debt is when it happens, that tends to make it a good deal worse because people that have medical debt also tend to be sick enough that they don't, they aren't able to work. So in addition to the fact that you've got these huge expenses coming out, you also have less money coming in. Your budget is getting compressed at the same time as more money is flowing out. This is where having supplemental insurance is a good thing. Um, that's one of the that's what I do for a living right now is selling insurance for just that kind of thing. Where we cover the parts that your medical insurance doesn't. And if you're you're looking for that sort of insurance, you know, you can get a hold of him. You know, Bowtie Beach. That's his uh, Twitter handle, and it you know the insurance company. We're not going to mention them here because we're uh, you know that's probably like a I'm sure that's against somebody's rule somewhere, but it involves a duck. If you can figure that one out, you probably know what, what that is. You know, I, my, my boss does listen to this uh, to our podcast, uh, which is kind of cool. But uh, so I just got to do a do a quick shout out while we're talking about it to uh, to Jason. Going back to the causes of of high debt, especially in America is student loan debt. The average student loan debt per household is $32,953. It's somewhere in the range of, you know, the amount of a car loan 
up to the, the value of, say, a decent house loan in rural Tennessee. That's pretty extreme. There's the other interesting fact of student loans is that they cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. Well, government student loans can't. Yeah, government student loans, which is what most people have. Mm-hmm. Now, you can you can always negotiate, you know, get different payment schedules. I think you've had to do this. Yeah, they're actually really, really good. There's several counseling services out there that you can pay to kind of do the work for you. Um, but if you don't really want to pay someone to do that, you can get a hold of the loan services and talk to them, explain to them, hey, this is how much I make. Uh, I also want to add, do not ever, ever, and tell this to everyone you know, never take out a private student loan. I don't know if they're as easy to get as they used to be, but the biggest headache I have had was the one private student loan I took out. I remember that conversation. You did a lot of uh, pacing. Yes. And a lot of, you know, muting, I think muting the phone and cursing. I hope it was muted. <laughs> it was. It was. I try, I'll be honest. I try to be nice. And this is one thing. When you are talking to debt collectors and people like that, the nicer you are to them, the more willing they are to look for ways to help you. Yeah. And so I try to be nice to them, but you get upset, you just mute the phone, rant, and then get back on the phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're paid to collect the money. If you can figure out a way that you two can work together to make that happen, they're getting what they need. They're getting their paycheck, and you're getting some of the pressure off of you. So another common cause of debt is, is homeowner debt. This would be your mortgage. The average mortgage debt per household in America is 156333 You've got to bear in mind that there's people that don't have mortgage debt. I was going to say, it's the same thing with the student loans being that low for the average. You have to think how many people have no student loans because they either didn't go to college or they had other means of, of paying, like work-study programs and stuff. So, Right. And it's the same thing with mortgages, right? If you're paying to rent an apartment yeah. or you're living with your parents, you're a zero on that. You think about how much that skews the ratio. So it's you know, probably out of the people that have mortgage debt, it's it's probably a good bit worse. Well, this reminds me of, uh, and this this information also comes from the Nerd Wallet. This uh, reminds me of a podcast I was listening to this morning on my drive-in about uh, the R programming language and talking about statistics and you know taking those outliers and finding like what is truly representative of right. the people. The average person with a mortgage. Yes. As opposed to just the average per household, because like you said, some households don't have a mortgage. Some live in apartments, some live with their parents, things like that. Uh, and so what what that podcast was talking about was really the R programming language. But that little segment that I'm ta- that I thought of is talking about how taking that data and looking at that. So that the listeners don't think that you're a jerk. Now you've got to include the link to that podcast in the show notes. And what is it called? Oh, I'm sorry, guys. It is uh, Programming Throwdown. They're actually a pretty interesting podcast. They look at different programming languages and talk about them. So I will post a link to them in our show notes because uh, those guys are actually pretty cool. Um, another 
source of at least some debt is vehicle debt. This is your, your car payments. The average household vehicle debt is $10,392. We got this um, from www.fool.com. I think that's the Motley Fool. You know, of course, a lot of people don't have those. Again, this is another one of those things where the zeros really skew things. I'm actually fairly lucky in that I think ours is you know, three or four grand at this point for my wife's car. I've got mine paid off, and it rattles like crazy going down the road, but it's so nice to not have a payment on it. Yeah, that that is one thing that I do like about my life right now is my truck and my bike are both paid off. Um, another thing that causes a lot of people problems is just lack of savings. People don't have a buffer, so if anything goes wrong, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, last, or the month before last, actually, August to early September, uh, I had a car accident. Somebody hit my car, and it turns out there was damage from two years, a little over two years prior, well, from actually from going down to Louisiana for your wedding. Yeah, I remember that. Well, there was about $1,000 worth of damage, uh, structural alignment that was basically whack. And had been, apparently, and I've been driving with it anyway, which doesn't say a whole lot for me, but you know, I had to pay that out of pocket. Well, that happened. Now, the week before that, I had cut my finger and had to go to the emergency room. That was a $700 bill. The week after that, my wife had to go to the emergency room. That was another five or $600 bill. She threw it back out. At the same time as that happened, the contract position that I was on cut me back to 20 hours a week. I remember when that happened. And it all hit within a space of two or three weeks. Yeah. And thankfully, I had a couple of months, you know, worth of expenses and savings. And so I was able to weather the storm. But when you don't have that, what do you do? Well, you end up taking out debts. I remember several years ago, back before I had huge amounts of student loans, a mutual friend of ours and I were talking, and I was asking him about investments. His response to my questions was, do you have your six months saved up? Right. And I was like, what do you mean? His response was, you need at least six months of savings in case something happens before you even think about investing. Right. Because when you when you invest, that money's locked up and it's hard to get. No, it's not, no longer liquid assets. Right. And you may, you may be in a position to have to sell it when the market's down mm-hmm. and so you lose some of that money and so yeah you know lack of savings tends to also be a cause of debt so it can be tricky to get out of you know out of debt and it's particular particularly tricky to try to build up enough savings where sudden events don't cause you problems especially once you're already in debt when you're in debt up to your eyeballs and it's hard to scrape five dollars together a month it's going to take a while before you actually have enough padding and you won't ever have it. Yeah. And so the problem is, is debt becomes a trap. It, it is for, for a lot of people. And you mentioned that book earlier about how yeah. to use debt yeah. to your Remit advantage. Session. Yeah. And this is, you know, but the thing about that is, is that's after you've already gotten non-productive debts out of the way. That's your exactly that where I was income. going with, with what I was saying. That's, so. Right on what I was saying. Yeah, and, and this this gets us down to the entire strategy of, of how to sort of work your way out of debt. There's really a couple of different ways. I mean, you'll see a lot of advice online that's easy um, and extremely unrealistic. Some of that advice is, you know, I've, I've even seen, like when I was researching this, 
I saw somebody suggesting buying lottery tickets. You've got to be kidding me. If lottery tickets is your idea of how to get out of debt, you've got to do something else. That's not going to work. Um, I've also seen a lot of other things that are realistic and extremely, extremely sucky. Um, one of those is is stuff like, you know, sell everything that you don't have a use for within the next two or three months. Like, get rid of all of it. You know, I've kind of uh, done some of that at times. Yeah. I wouldn't say everything, but I've made quite a few trips to the used bookstore to sell a lot of the books that I don't really read that often or... When you, when you have a lot of stuff, you tend to keep it indoors. You tend to keep it in areas that are heated and cooled. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have actually got storage. That they're paying $100, $200 a month for a storage unit for stuff that they've not looked at in two or three years. So sometimes that can be a way. But you know, most of the ways, realistically, are you know, they're kind of miserable. Um, so we're going to do a few things to kind of help here. The first thing is, is that budgeting is very, very important. And it's not so much the fact that, you know, initially, at least in the early phases, it's not so much that you make a budget and you stick to something that's just, you know, absolute austerity and you don't have, you know, there's no fun in your life or anything at all. It's more a matter of actually having numbers to track. The best way to set a budget is to take a few weeks, and this kind of goes back to behavioral psychology, but take a few weeks a month or two and look at what you're spending. Just write it all down. Write down what you're spending, take a look at it, and then go back through it and set your budget. Now one thing about setting budgets that I guess give yourself a certain amount of money in your budget to just go out and randomly buy something you see. Because you're going to do it anyways. Well this is sort of like the thing with um, you know diet programs. You know, somebody has a diet where they go, I'm just going to eat salad for a month. What happens? They get a weekend, and then what do they do? They go to KFC and they get the bucket of chicken. The, you know, the real important thing here is that actually having numbers to track alters your behavior. Because most people really aren't aware on how, you know, of how much they spend money on. Just on little stupid junk. Like for instance, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bad about going out to eat at work. Most of the jobs I've had, people won't leave you, you know, they won't leave you the heck alone during lunch. I'm pretty bad about that too, but then again, yeah. the job I have right now involves me driving around a lot. And yeah, so you're stuck anyway. Mm -hmm. But, you know, mine is, is, oh, well, you know, I need to get out of the office just so that I can, you know, breathe and stay psychologically healthy. And, you know, it's not really a problem in my current job, but it's been in the past. And what do I do? Well, I'll, I'll go to the Thai restaurant and eat a big meal. Or I go to the Indian restaurant, eat a big meal. There's always a big meal involved, which is a whole other thing. But you know, you don't think about it being that much money until you start looking back over a month. And so the idea here is, is to measure, and you see where you are, and then you can see where to cut. Because some of those things are not really things that really give you pleasure. Yeah, it's you're spending money either to avoid pain or because you're not really thinking about it. This will let you be more intentional about where you make the changes to actually fix your financial picture. And you can also, when you're doing this, look at where you're spending your money and ways that you can optimize that. Uh, quick example, I like playing video games, particularly console games. I'm a big Xbox fan, and I realized I was spending 
20 to $30 a month buying a new game every month. Uh, that's a... That's an average, because some months I would spend a lot less going to a used store. Some months I would spend a lot more when a new game came out. But what I found was Xbox Live gives you two free games a month. Guess what? That's like 60 bucks a year. So here I am. I get two games a month. And you didn't have to go to the store for those either, right? Yeah, I didn't have to go to the store. Yeah, it streams them in and... So you also saved gas money, the value of your time, a little bit of frustration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, rather than spending 30 to $60 a month on games, I don't think I've bought a game in over a year. Yeah. So that, you know, that can be huge. Um, another thing that can actually help is, right, we discussed the side of, you know, tracking things. Um one thing that's often easier for people that they don't really think about is looking for ways to generate extra income. We have a tendency in this country to go, you know, I make X amount per year and I spend you know, some amount less than that. Well, if I can cut it by more, you know, I'll be better off. Well, sometimes what you need to do is you just need to raise the income. Yeah. And that can often be a little bit easier, a little bit more straightforward to make happen. Uh, one One good way to do this is just, Taking on taking on extra work, you know, getting a second job. This is why I do contract work on the side, is because it gives me a little boost of income. You know, here and there, it lets me pay for Christmas presents. You know, I have a monitor that burns out. I can buy another one. And this this is something though that you do have to watch because if you guys listened to last week's episode, we talked about being a workaholic. What are you trying to say? <laughs> I don't know, Mr. When was the last time I had a chance to go hang out and do stuff? You had a vacation this weekend. Well, yeah, I went to Indianapolis this weekend, and that was that was pretty cool. I did. Uh, my birthday was actually this past weekend. Yeah, so everybody uh, wish, Saturday. wish Will a happy birthday. And I only worked seven hours. On Saturday? On Saturday. Um, which was, was, it was cool, you know. I actually did something else. I honestly don't know... How you would survive if you did not work as much. I've never known you to not. Yeah, it's not really part of my personality. I, I like what I do. Yeah, and that, and that goes but, back to what workaholism is, is you enjoy it, so it's not workaholism. It's something yeah. that you enjoy. You take you gain pleasure out of well, it. Well, and I don't watch TV is the other thing, so I've got a tremendous amount of time. Another thing that you can do sometimes to get better results quickly is get a higher paying job. It's especially in tech. If you are a programmer and you're a junior level programmer, like I'm seeing them come in, at, you know, in the in the 40s right now. Yeah. When I started, it was in the 30s. After a year of experience, your value jumps quite a bit. Like your your growth curve for programming skill is extremely steep in the early years. As you get faster, you get more productive. You get where you know about more tools, and you still have enough new knowledge to actually be productive. If you're early on in your career, it's very, very easy in many cases to just get a different job or to get a promotion at your current job, although there's not a whole lot of upward mobility in most companies. You jump to a different company and then you jump back if you want to if, if you want to grow your income. But this can actually work uh, insofar as you being able to bring in more income and, and, and fix the problem. Now, granted, if you keep throwing more money at it, like you know, you, making more money cannot be 
your final strategy, right? Well, you you make more money, and then you end up spending more money because you're like, I've got this extra money. Right. I'll go buy a brand new Harley. Right. Well, you, that's what I would think. Right. Or you get a larger house where you have that's your own you office. So um, another thing that they can kind of help a little bit is is money from selling things. A lot of people have a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, frankly, a lot of people are pretty much hoarders. Apparently, I'm a hoarder of kitchen equipment. Yes, you are. Yeah, I have like two bread machines and two food dehydrators. Hey, do you still have my uh, wooden spoon from college? That's yours? Yeah. Crap. You can keep can I, it. Can I keep it for a little while? You can uh, keep it because I have another one, okay. but <laughs> yeah, that was my teaspoon. I used it to make tea. Okay. Anyone not from the South probably will not, or especially anyone from not from America, might not understand uh, yeah, we pour like tea. we we pour like ten pounds of sugar in a cup. Uh, another thing you can do is look at ways to reduce expenses. A lot of times, people have expenses that they haven't really been thinking about, and some of these are from Time.com, and this will be in the show notes as well. One thing you can do is look at ways of settling large debts or discussing debt reduction, uh, particularly with uh, student loans and medical debt. These yeah. tend to be actually pretty valid strategies. I can talk about both of those, really. When it comes to student loans, um, there are a lot of counseling services out there that w- will help you do this, but it's not something you have to have them do. If you take the time, you can do it on your own, which is get in touch with your debtors, which is pretty much the government, and explain to them, hey, this is how much I make, this is how much I can, you know, my bills, and what I can afford to pay, they are really willing to work with you to help you to pay that off if you're willing to work with them and make payments. When it comes to medical bills, it's kind of the same thing. One thing to note about medical bills is they don't have interest. Right. Most doctors and hospitals don't want to deal with that. So if you get in touch with the person that handles their billing and explain, hey, I can't pay, you know, $1,000 right out of pocket, but I'd be willing to... Oh, you had two aspirin, did you? If you get in touch with them and say, hey, I can't pay $1,000 out of pocket, but I'm willing to send you guys $50 a month, they will be very willing to work with you. Now, they do have some constraints in what they're allowed to do. But if you're making those monthly payments regularly, you're not going to have any trouble out of them. They don't want to write off a debt. Yeah. Uh, another thing you might want to look at doing is actually de-automating your finances. Um, I mentioned earlier Ramit Sethi's book, you know, I Will Teach You to Become Rich, or I'll Teach You, teach you to Be Rich, rather. Uh, he really should have called it, I will teach you to become rich, as opposed to, I will teach you to be rich. But one thing he talks about is how you automate your finances so that it's not a headache. Well, when you're getting out of debt, that's not exactly true. Because one of the problems that gets you into debt is surprises. So one thing you may want to actually do is de-automate your finances. And what this means is, is instead of having money come out of your account on a regular basis, you have a Google alert that tells you when you need to spend that money. If your paycheck hasn't arrived, you don't spend that money. You know, that makes perfect sense, especially with things that are not vital. Like, you know, when your paycheck hasn't come in and you've got just a little bit of money in your account, you've got bills to pay, and 
Netflix takes out their nine dollars a month automatically. Yeah, and that's annoying. Yeah, obviously you don't want to do this with mortgages and some of those things. Like you, you need to think about what kind of lender you're doing this with. Some of them are more tolerant of, of slightly late payments than others. Banks are not tolerant. Uh, don't try this with a bank. It, you know, it, it can help. You know, like for instance, if you have a subscription or you know a cable bill, a cable bill can be two days late. They're not going to cut off cable because they have to send somebody out to cut it off, and then they have to send somebody out again to turn it back on. And you know, if it's two days late, they're they're not going to really scream and cry that much. In fact, they're probably going to blame the post office. Yeah, if you get in touch with them and talk to them about it, they're usually really willing to work with you. Most people, if you talk to them in a polite manner. Even if you're upset and you tell them, hey, I'm upset about this, but you're polite, I don't know, that just goes so far in making the whole issue easier on you and on them. Because remember, the people you're talking to are human. Yeah, they're human and they're doing a job. Yeah, that's that's the overriding thing. Um, another thing you may want to look at doing is reducing how much out of your paycheck you're giving to the IRS this is particularly true if you are frequently getting a tax refund. When you're getting a tax refund, what you are essentially doing is giving an interest-free loan to the government. And what are you doing on the loans that you've taken out? Paying interest, right? So you're losing money out of the gate. You've got to be careful with this, right? Because you don't want to get nailed April 15th and suddenly have a huge amount of money come out and have to take out a credit card loan to, to cover it. But you may want to look at these numbers and see if, if you're getting, you know, for instance, if you're getting $3,000 back, let's say, or let's, let's make, let's make the math easy because I don't, I don't really want to type on the Windows calculator because it sounds like a machine gun when I type. Let's say that the, the IRS is refunding you $3,600, your taxes, right. right? That's what you're getting every year. That's $300 a month that you're giving to those bloodsuckers. I'm sorry. The federal government. No, no, you were right the first time. Well, right the second too. That's $300 a month that you're giving them as an interest-free loan. So stop it. Cut that back. You know, figure out what that number is. It's worth it in many cases even to engage an accountant, accountant and figure out how much am I over and how much can I adjust yeah, I would agree completely with this. But what I don't understand is the people who are so proud of how much they get back. And I'm just looking at them going, that is good marketing. Yeah, it really That's is. That's all it is, is they are completely snowed by excellent marketing on behalf of the U.S. government, which, you know, golf clap for you, you know, Mr. Government Man, that's... You know, that's, that's good marketing, and, you know, we salute you for that. However... Being on the receiving end, this isn't something you want to do to yourself. So that's that's something to, to be avoided. But here's an idea for you. Take that money, take what you, you know, how much you would be paying that extra amount, throw it into a savings account. Even if it's, most savings accounts are pretty low interest, but like a percent interest. Yeah, I just got a savings account. I got mine upgraded and it's 0.1 something percent. Yeah. Again, this is Bank of America, so you might get 0.2% somewhere else. That's really not going to be a lot of money. No, but it's going to be... But just hanging on to it until it's time to actually pay, 
you know, that, that money can now be there for emergencies. The IRS is not, you know, they're, they're, they can be kind of fearsome on tax collections, but what they're, they're not going to be as nasty as a bank is. They're between banks and regular lenders, you know, as far as, you know, like cable bills and those kind of things. Well, I will say this about the IRS and, um, my, my father was a preacher before he retired and so he was pretty much self-employed uh, so far as the IRS was concerned. And there were several times that he and my mom had to get extensions. And they're very, very good about... Yeah, I mean, you've done the self-employed thing too. And they're really good about giving you those extensions because they would rather give you an extension and have you pay... Than have to come after you because that costs money. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got an extension. You know, I, I was... I was working through another company, and they owed me, I think, nine grand. Yeah, that's what you told me. Yeah, it was, it was something in that range, and I got the extension, and I was able to send them a check like a week later. It just it was not in my account at that point. It's like okay, it's in accounts receivable. I, I, you know, I can I can send you a note with a this is I owe you this much money, but you know the money's not there. Again, it goes back to. You're dealing with people. Well, and IRS. Are gonna, I mean, even the IRS, they're going to be reasonable. Well, the thing is, is they'll also let you settle. Another thing to think about is how you pay off your debt. There's there's really two general schools of thought here. The first is actually the most mathematically sound, and that is to pay off the highest interest debt first. Um, the reason that's the most mathematically sound way is that that it, decreases the growth rate of your debt the fastest so that you can, you know, your money actually goes, goes a little further. However, the most psychologically sound way is the sort of thing that uh, Dave Ramsey, who's actually a Nashville uh, local, I've never met him, but listen to his radio show a lot. You know, his, his idea is that you pay off the smallest debt first. And the reason is, is that you can get rid of that and you get a little bit of uh you get a little bit of a, a kick on that. Almost, it, it's basically your own Skinner box, right? You just you achieved getting rid of this debt, and I honestly think that this is a better way to do it, uh, provided that you know you're you don't have a debt that's just a crazy high interest rate that it's really going to kill you financially. If it's a dollar difference a month, the smaller debt's the way to go because you maintain your motivation. And so this is uh, this is kind of why he suggests that. I think it's, you know, generally speaking, a better way to go about it is to, is to actually attack the smallest debt first, provided that you don't have a large debt with a high interest rate. For instance, if you have a credit card bill that's at, you know, 17% and you owe, you owe them $40,000, you don't want to pay off something that's, you know, a 0.1% and you owe $500 first necessarily. You might want to focus on the other. But generally speaking, you know, from a psychological psychological perspective you want to pop the smaller debt first just so that you can keep going because it gives you a feeling of achievement if you are at a point where it's a large debt with a high interest rate you want to pay that one off as soon as possible Um, however if you're in a field like me where you get paid on commission and you just get a really big commission Sometimes it's amazingly wonderful to pay those off. I know I paid off my Amazon credit card that I used for Christmas gifts 
with one of my first paychecks at my job and it was just great because yeah it, it wasn't a big debt it was kind of high interest but it still wasn't very big yeah. but i just knocked that out and i didn't have to worry about it anymore yeah and i'm in the same boat right now right i have that that plumbing bill from last year which was about 14k 14 and a half k somewhere in that range i forget what the total was i've paid 12 of it off in the last year and it was a sequence of bad events that tick me off like literally every time I send them a check it makes me mad so I'm paying it off first this is part of these things that you know that you balance the financial health and the psychological health this is why we're discussing this in the manner that we're discussing it it's why we're telling you not to go for extreme measures to fix the debt unless you absolutely have to is because psychologically that's pretty rough on you and financially psychological problems are rough further out uh, it increases your odds of winning. So since we're getting a little close to running out of time, uh, a few other last thoughts. Uh, one thing that you have to bear in mind in this whole process is that you did not get into debt overnight. Um, and that's that's the important thing to remember because you're not going to get out of debt overnight either. It's going to require discipline in places that you might not have had good discipline. It's going to require planning in places that you might not have had good planning. Sometimes it's going to require luck. A lot of times people focus on, you know, when they're trying to get out of debt, they focus on what they don't want. And I don't, you know, I've watched a few friends do this successfully and I've watched quite a few others not do it successfully. And one thing I've noticed with the people that do it and do not succeed is they focus on what they don't want. They don't want their house repossessed. They don't want, you know, their car repossessed. They don't want, you know, bill collectors calling all the time. Right. Obviously, these are these are threats. These are things you got to deal with. But what you really want to do is start focusing on the things that you actually want. I want not to pay Synchrony Bank a payment every month for a house that I don't live in. I want to buy a new Harley. Right. And the, these sort of things, the things that you're you're looking at, and you're going, okay, this is going to make my life better in some way. This is going to get things on an upward angle. Um, you know, insofar as my general happiness, this will motivate you a great deal more. It also cuts down on just the, you know, the demotivational aspects of I'm doing this out of fear, right? Don't do it out of fear. Speaking of wanting a new Harley, if there's anyone out there who works for Harley Davidson that, you know, would like us to advertise for you, I would gladly mention Harley Davidson on Every show from now on for a free Harley. Of my choice. On a soft deal. Wow. Um, so uh, now we know the price. And there we are. I was just going to like angle for the free link hit account, but you had to go for the Harley. Yes. I'll take the free link hit account, account still. Well, I take that too because link hit's freaking awesome. But. Yeah. Which we, by the way, just got that. Um, and this not is the free one, but not yeah, we did not get the free one at all. Um, well, it's it's currently free because I still haven't been able to get the payment to go through. However, um, that's one of the things that we we've, we've kind of been doing on the side, and this is actually another thing we really didn't cover here is being organized and getting. Oh yeah, you know, we've got a whole episode on just on organization. Like we've got time management, but there's another one coming out that's purely on organization and some tips and some tricks and tools that you can use to help organize not just your work but your life in general yeah so that 
that covers most of what we had to talk about on financial health. And uh, that kind of closes out the series on uh, health concerns for developers. Uh, the reason we've done this, and we stated it before, is this is setting a baseline for future episodes so that we can just refer back to it and everybody knows where we are and what we're talking about. That being said, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, this week I've got a, uh, I've got a pretty interesting little tool. It's called NimbleText, and it's available at nimbletext.com. And what this tool will allow you to do, it basically harnesses the power of regex without the pain of regex. So in the top part of the tool, it's got an area where you can drop a comma-separated list of values. And then below that, it's got a section where you put in the pattern that you want to substitute. And then below that, there's an area where it dumps. So for instance, if you have a, if you have a list of Let's say first name, last name, and I don't know, suff or uh, honorific, you know, for Mr. Mrs. whatever. Well, then you could put a substitute pattern in there to say suffix, first name, last name, or dear suffix, first name, last name, and it will dump those texts out. So think about it. It's kind of like a uh, mail merge for code. I think it's probably the best way to put it. You can do similar stuff in Excel. And most of the time it works out okay, but this is a tool that's, you know, really geared more towards programmers, and it's it's pretty handy. Well, uh, does does it work across platforms? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. I think it may be Windows only. Well, yeah, it does appear to be Windows only. However, um, if you're running on Linux, I imagine it will probably run just fine under Wine, because it's a it is a fairly simple app, and under Mac, you know, if you're, you know, there's there's ways to get it to load. I guess is the is the option. Also, there there is an online version of it, and that is available at nimbletext.com/live. Uh, it's not as full featured, but you can dump the things in there and and get the output completely online within the browser. The tool is available at nimbletext.com, and if you want the live web version, that is nimbletext.com slash live. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is OMFG Hello by Argo Fox and is also licensed under Creative Commons and available on SoundCloud. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.